How hard can it be? Up close and personal with the real people behind the hits and misses in Boston's venture capital big time. My name is Mike Triano and I'm the Chief Marketing Officer of Actifio and a limited partner in Boston's own G20 Ventures. You can follow me on Twitter at Mike Trapp and check out my Medium blog at MikeTrapp.com. Each week we'll be getting to know one of the luminaries in our local startup community and drill into a specific area of their expertise for the benefit of other entrepreneurs and investors. Now this week, my guest is Jules Peary, co-founder and CEO of the product launch platform, The Gromit. The company's citizen commerce movement is shaping how consumer products get discovered, shared, and bought, and uh, Gromit's been a huge success uh, under Jules' careful leadership. Now, Jules started her career as an industrial designer for technology companies and was subsequently a senior executive for large brands including Keds, StrideRite, and PlaySchool. The Gromits are actually her third startup, uh, following roles as VP at design firm Continuum and president of Ziggs.com. She completed her undergraduate degree at the University of Michigan, and people tell her she's the first designer to graduate from the Harvard Business School, where she's currently an entrepreneur in residence. Now, Jules was named one of Fortune's most powerful women entrepreneurs in 2013, and in 2014, she was invited to the White House Maker Fair to launch the Gromit wholesale platform, connecting makers with Main Street retailers. She writes a personal blog at jules.thegromit.com and the CEO Unplugged column on Inc.com. She posts as Jules Peary on Twitter and on Instagram. You know, Jules is someone who saw the democratization of product development before anyone else I knew. Uh, I've known her for a long time. She's a great human being and a great entrepreneur. And I'm really excited to uh, tell her story, uh, which I have to say included some real surprises for me. Now, the title of our second segment this week is Amazon Sucks. And to be honest, no one is more surprised to be writing those words than me, having been an Amazon fanboy since all they sold were books. To be honest, I've loved Amazon for a long time. I respect their execution, how they take care of me as a customer, and it's the default store in our household, which probably spends more than it should online. When I posted something to that effect on Facebook, though, my friend Jules stepped in to set me straight about the impact of Amazon's policies related to pricing on fellow entrepreneurs. She has some very specific concerns about the way they've gone after counterfeiters in particular, and I have to say, having spent some time with Jules, uh, I now share those concerns. If you're skeptical, that's great. Hear her out in our second segment today uh, and judge for yourself. All right, How Hard Can It Be is sponsored by G20 Ventures, early traction capital for East Coast enterprise tech startups, backed by the power and expertise of 20 of the Northeast's most accomplished entrepreneurs, G20 Ventures, people first. How Hard Can It Be is also sponsored by Actifio. Actifio virtualizes data the way a hypervisor virtualizes compute to help customers enable the hybrid cloud, build higher quality applications faster, and improve business resiliency and availability. Actifio, radically simple. Here now is my conversation with Jules Peary. With me today is Jules Peary, CEO and co-founder of The Gromit. How are you? I'm great. Um, thank you for hosting me. I um, parking was a fucking nightmare getting out here, but uh, <laughs> Somerville. Uh, but it is pretty spectacular. This is a very cool, very cool facility. We have a parking lot. Yeah, it was full. It was full. Oh, I'm on the street. Sorry, I'm nobody. I'm, I'm dirt. <laughs> um, no, seriously, this is a really impressive place, and I've obviously seen it like anybody who's been to the site. But uh, just a cool group of people, really great energy. You've, you've created something special here. Thanks. So congratulations. Love being here. All right, so um, so we want to start by just getting to know you a little bit. Um, where did you grow up? Detroit, in the city. And uh, are you, uh, you come from a big family, small family? I'm the oldest of four. Yeah. 
My dad was an auto worker, toolmaker. My mom was a bank teller, then homemaker. Right. And uh, what was growing up like for you? I was kind of an alien um, in that I got a lot of big ideas really early. So I'm in this very working class kind of um, everybody's a cop or a factory worker, dad. Some moms worked, some didn't. Um, But it wasn't, uh, it was pretty much like the expectations were be a solid citizen, like stay out of jail, pull your weight. That was kind of the ambition I, you know, I kind of picked up from my environment. I remember um, at our ninth grade graduation, I went to public schools and through ninth grade, um, we weren't behaving in the in the uh, rehearsal, and the teacher, the English teacher, head of the English department, got up on on a table. She was so mad at us, and said, "For most of you losers, this will be your last graduation of your life." Listen, you know. So that was the environment. Wow. My parents were loving and steady, so I didn't feel alien from. I was lucky, you know, to have sure. a solid family and two parents there. Yeah. Um, but things things are pretty different in terms of my ambitions from their lives. Right. And I got a lot of ideas from books really young. I was, they would kick me out of class a lot in elementary school and send me to the library. And I would... They kicked me out because I was done. I mean, I wasn't, you know, shooting rubber bands at the teacher. Sure, sure. Sure, sure. You don't believe me. So I just read everything in that... Damn library, and mostly biographies. That's what I mostly liked. And I got huge ideas. Like, I really believe them, you know. It's good to read biographies when you're, like, 8 and 10 because you just think this is possible, right? Yeah. I'm a huge, huge fan of that. always was. Um, I'm actually reading the Grant biography now. If you oh, yeah? Read, it's very good. All right, so uh, so you did you move into a private school environment after that at that uh, auspicious uh, sending off in ninth grade or or, or, or? Um, so what happened was um, I was thinking of going to the local technical school. It's like um, Boston Latin in yep. an exam school, and so I mentioned it to a teacher who was very influential in my life. She was somebody. There were a lot of drugs and just craziness outside the door at my junior high, and um, she would let me come in and sit in her classroom before school started. So I spent, she pretended she was grading papers. I think she was really there to, like, give me guidance and a couple of my friends. And I mentioned to her I was going to apply to Cass Tech, and she said, well, you know, there are these private schools around here. Ultimately, I snuck behind my parents' backs and applied or called a boarding school about 45 minutes from Detroit called Cranbrook um, and applied without asking and then ultimately because they had to fill out financial aid forms my parents of course found out right <laughs> and um, I ended up getting in and getting a full scholarship so I went in 10th grade wow what was that like that transition showing up there in, in a di- environment that had to be very different from the one that you'd been in nauseating it was so hard at first. Um, very first lunch, we were like talking about what we did for the summer with these new people uh, uh, there. And I was all excited because they had something really good to say. I had saved up, I had an under the table job in a florist, and I'd saved up all my money and bought a Schwinn Varsity 10 speed. 
I felt such freedom. I felt like a grown up, you know. So that I had a good thing to say. And as the table like went around, and it was like safari in Africa, and yeah. you know, I realized, oh my, this is not Kansas anymore. Um, but more so, what was harder was um, academically, I was not prepared. So I would go into say a class like algebra two and think I had algebra one. And I really hadn't had it. So there was not all classes, but the sequential classes were really hard. So the first couple of weeks I was realizing that and I was literally like nauseous um, every morning. But I'll tell you this, um, it now to this day is the most entrepreneurial thing I ever did. Like, Like battling through that at 14, you know, alone and um, ultimately graduating fourth in my class this year I was asked to be the commencement speaker and I'm named the distinguished alum so from that scared little skinny scholarship student you know to just graduating like let's start there that was like the like confidence muscle sure you know like every little thing that you do that's hard and where you embrace not just the scary decision but the discomfort past the scary decision yeah is confidence building yeah it's liberating in a way that you feel like you've measured yourself against some standard that's that's um, you know I had a similar experience at Harvard which we'll talk about uh, in a little while in, in the context of your life but um, that's definitely um, his close to home did you read the book Hillbilly Elegy by any chance yes um, so that where he goes on to talk about all that he didn't know going to Yale yeah. that, that people just take for granted there was like three pages of things, and I was reading it, and I was like, I remember all that. I remember yeah. the fork thing and the, you know, that you, you wore different shoes to an interview and, like, all this stuff. Right. I think it was a little easier in some ways to do it in high school where the stakes were lower. Yeah. And it was a boarding. Yale Law, certainly. In his than case. Yale Law, yeah. exactly, or even Harvard undergrad. Yeah. The other thing you said that's interesting is, you know, there is something in, in um, getting comfortable being uncomfortable. Yeah. You know, that I think that, that that is very often a catalyst for people that, that to do achieve anything you, that's new, it forces you to, you know, you're pushed out of your comfort zone by definition. Yes. And I do think that um, that developing that ability to sort of, you know, be comfortable with being uncomfortable, for lack of a better uh, turn of phrase, is, is, uh, is important. It's something I actually discuss with, with my kids sometimes because, uh, you know, I do worry about doing them a disservice of, of uh, you know, that they're not sufficiently uncomfortable. You know what I mean? It's huge to me. I remember um, saying to myself, I guess, I want my kids to be healthy and happy. I have three sons. Um, I want them to be healthy and happy, but after that I want them to be interesting. And I did this whole little analysis in my head. How do people get interesting? And I decided it was either through an extreme talent um, or adversity quite often. And... I couldn't really impose, they, none of us are extremely talented, and I couldn't really impose artificial adversity, but I figured out a way to do it anyway, um, which was we all moved to Ireland when they were 6, 9, and 12, and I was literally imposing my proxy of what I went through on them. It was more than that. We wanted to have a fun experience, yeah. and we lived there four years and had a blast, but I was sensitive to that because I always thought that was... And it seems like you do too. That was an important part of um, what gave me confidence to try hard things. That I had to do some hard things young. Yeah, yeah. 
All right, so you, you get through that experience, you thrive there, and um, now you're looking at colleges. Uh, wh- where did you go and why? Uh, the local state school, and I'm so lucky it was the University of Michigan. Right. So, Had you spent time in Ann Arbor? I mean, no, Was never. any of the mythology around Michigan part of it, or was it just totally practical, proximity-based decision? Pretty much that, although at my school it was a, a, a desirable place to go. Sure, it, was not, yeah. it was not like the safety school. Yeah, so, yeah. A lot of kids couldn't get in. Um, it's an amazing place. I mean, it's I've an been amazing there. place. Yeah. It is. It is. But I'll tell you one funny thing. So my parents, who never, you know, went to college, and kind of scared them, frankly. You know, my going. I, I don't know if you can relate to that, but you you have to manage as a kid in that situation, um, not changing too much in at least in their view, like not not becoming alien to your parents, because that's never a goal, right? You never want to be somebody that. Yeah they can't relate to. Um, and so it, those kind of moves scared them. I mean, for me, there was definitely a, um, it's a different dynamic between fathers and sons, I think, this sort of competitive um, dynamic. And for me, um, one of the great things my dad did for me, uh, among many great things that he's done for me, but but uh, at one point he had given me some advice that wasn't great advice and and we kind of figured it out together. And he, he sort of took me aside and said, you know, you're you're in a place now that that isn't part of you know a world I understand and I and you, I can't help you you know you're yeah. kind of on your own but you're going to be okay and that was really a you know I know how hard that would be to say to my son now right. and uh, it was a it was a great kindness you know right uh, right 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 but uh, what did you do out of school uh, right out of school I was an industrial designer for a company that's now called Unisys so I designed Sperry. Well, I we were the borough side. Right. Spare, you, you're my vintage. You remember that was yeah. a merger. Sure. And so, yeah, I was um, living the dream, honestly, um, in terms of a real design job, which wasn't necessarily easy to get. So that's, that's what I was doing, designing. Um, in my case, they had a lot of um, a banking business, so banking equipment. What was the appeal of, of design for you? Was it a sort of introspection about about what you were good at? Was it something you just loved? Um, what drew you into, into you know, you, you know, obviously this love of products is a common yeah, thread throughout your funny? career. Uh, what, what, where does that come from, do you think? Well, industrial design, um, was I never heard of it, right, when I was a kid, or most, you know, people don't really know what it is, or more so now, but certainly not then. Um, so this is what happened. My high school had massive art facilities and I I was like the the lonely teenage kid who would like you know listen to bread and weave or do ceramics like I did a (laughs) ton of art and I went to college and I decided to put myself on an art diet Um, I I was gonna see if I could live without it because I just didn't see it as a career for me you know I was very academic and I missed it so I went and took a sculpture class after a couple terms and I was walking down the hall of the art and design building and I saw these little models of, um, they were little electronics products in a case. Like, and I just, it like blew the top of my head off. Like, this is a thing people do? Like, these are student projects? They design products? And I just realized like in a nanosecond that business, because this would require being integrated into a business and a team, which sounded cool to me, but I would get to create something. And that, that, that was it, that moment. Although I will tell you, 
I applied to get into the program. I was late then at that point. It's an intense program. I got rejected. Rejection's a big theme in my life. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Like I'm kind of proud of it now, but it's hard at the time sometimes. Sure. Um, yeah, they rejected me. And I remember going to my, my that sculpture teacher and saying, eh, I didn't get in. He said, what? Because he thought I was a good student. And uh, it turned out the dean at the, who was making the decisions actually was battling cancer. And it was just a hard time for him. And decisions were, you know, maybe not his best sometimes, I guess. And so he just told me, do it again. Apply again. I'll back you. I got in. That was a good lesson, right? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. you don't know what's going on and why you're rejected. Yeah. Also, it's good to know a guy. It's good to know a guy. You're right. <laughs> you're right. Although, growing up, this might have happened to you. I was always told never to do that, never to leverage a relationship. Oh, God. That in, in Among Italians in Rhode Island, that's everything. To leverage or not leverage? To always know a guy. You got to know a guy. Well, know a guy can do something, but you mean know a guy can help you get something? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, no. I, we were like the do something. I'll give you an example. I... When I was in design school, I wanted an internship, and there was this company called Stevens Engineering. I found the yellow pages. They designed, like, bumper load assemblies for Chrysler, like the things that made the cars they did. I thought, well, I, I, I love a drafting job there for this summer. And I tripped on the knowledge that this business was owned by one of my dad's best friends, someone my dad had really helped through illness and things. And I told him, Dad, I think this is Mr. Stevens's brother's company and I have an interview and he said whatever you do don't mention me and I'm, and it's not that he was a like didn't want me to succeed he wanted me to get that job on my own wow god that's so that's so foreign to me it is I wonder if that's Irish versus Italian it, or if that's just you know I say this all the time but everything you need to know about business and networking is in the first five minutes of the godfather <laughs> <laughs> um, which is, you know, I mean, that movie is, uh, he, he accumulates power over a lifetime with a very simple idea that, you know, I'm going to do something nice for you. And then you're going to, you're going to do something nice for me when I ask you to down the road, you know, but that quid pro quo, yeah. I think is a very cultural norm, very strong cultural norm. And, uh, at least among the Italians. So you know I, what mine equivalent would be knowing is, and I'm serious about this, knowing cop no, to get you out of trouble. Yeah. Like I always knew in Detroit because my family had some cops in it that I had a chance of getting out of trouble. And I'm talking like, what do I, what am I doing? Like speeding tickets. Yeah, sure. But that that I do remember, yeah. like throwing around a name, knowing a name in the police force. Yeah, no, no cops in my family. That's another podcast. <laughs> um, all right, so uh, you 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 uh, get this is a you know big job at a big prominent company. Um, doing the thing that you love to do, and so you live happy ever, happily ever after. What 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 happened after that? Um, a couple of things. I guess I met a guy, and he was from Boston, and he told me he hated Detroit so much that he had an eighteen month lease. Like that was his shelf life in the city. So from the minute I met him, almost I knew this ticking time bomb of a Bostonian. Right. And. That was A-OK with me because I had places to go, people to see. So I already had targeted Boston and t- four other cities as I wouldn't mind moving to. Right. So I just applied to business school, applied for jobs. Um, I actually beat Des to Boston. He was having <laughs> Mother's Day with my mother in Detroit, and I was with his mother. But, yeah, I got a job, and I got accepted to business school. And I ended up doing both, told the job. It was Data General, another blast from the past. Um that I had been Westboro. 
Westboro. My dad was a sales guy there. No way. Yeah. You were on the product side of DG? Yes. I um, I was in the industrial design department, but actually doing graphic design because I have both degrees. So I was working on packaging. And they, believe it or not, created the world's first laptop that nobody ever saw. It's called the DG1. Well, you might have seen it because you're dad. So I was developing the packaging for that. Huh. That project sent me to business school. Pretty quickly in my design career, I could see it wasn't much of a career at the time in terms of um, designers were not cool and, you know, on in the C-suite. They were not reporting to CEOs. Design thinking wasn't understood. We were seen as stylists. And there was one mo- meeting at DG that kind of sent me over the edge. Um, so I'm working on the packaging, and I'm the, like the little junior baby in a meeting where the product is being evaluated. Um, and my senior colleagues were presenting their ideas, and the man in charge of engineering um, kind of was making all the decisions. And he was an ex-military guy named Herb, and he was there with a brush cut and an army green suit on, and our colleagues were recommending cream-colored for the product that was, you know, computers didn't really have like a home feeling and that was kind of an advanced recommendation, right? Like right. Apple hadn't done it yet. And um, Herb said, he, he, he like looks at his suit and says, no, I want it this color, army green. And I just sat there like and crumbled on behalf of my senior leaders who knew what they were talking about. I mean, it was more than color. It was all the decisions. Herb was just overriding. Sure. And I just thought, I got to be Herb. Yeah. I am going to be Herb. Yeah, in the room where it happens. Yeah. <laughs> um, we have a, a mutual friend, Chris Colbert. And yeah. one of the things that um, I have so many Chris Colbert-isms kicking around in my head on any given day. But one of them that really stuck to me is is that good people crave consequence in their work. Huh. Um I think that's hugely insightful that, that when I look back at the times in my career where I was unhappy, it was because I felt like what I was doing didn't really matter. Right. Um, and that's demoralizing. Like the rest of the shit you can put up with, but that is like, you got to make a change. Yeah. Um, all right. So Harvard big business school, big deal. I mean, I, I, the only people I know who did, who expected to get in there were total dicks. Right. So <laughs> that had to be a, uh, <laughs> had to be a, uh, um, it was a happy day. Yeah. And you, you, uh, w- what did you take away from your HBS experience? You know, one of the things people always ask me is, is, is it worth doing and whatever? So share your experience in, in that, you know, decision, um, yeah. and what you feel it did for you in your career. It was absolutely worth it. I would say, um, it wasn't always comfortable per our earlier, you know, discussion. Sure. I was the first designer to go there and they didn't have all the kind of, now they have almost like pre-remedial courses for non-business you know, business yeah. people. <laughs> and um, so, you know, that took took a little getting used to. My last math class was Algebra 2 after that terrible high school experience, you know. But what I got out of it, a few things, a lot of great things. One um, was, I know this sounds really trivial, but it's not in business. I hung around a lot of creative people and... Um, I didn't know how to like sort of navigate new social situations and small talk and like quickly assess something or quickly make someone feel comfortable and like just conversationally all those parties and all those you know even just as a case like defending yourself in a case like you know articulating your ideas in the section yeah in the section but mostly I'm talking about the social life that was so radical to me um and that was helpful I also um Nobody can bullshit me. Like, 
I, you could have bullshit me before. I would have known I didn't know stuff. And I still don't know stuff, but I can figure it out, and I know I've been given the kind of experience to do so. You know, yeah. business is not rocket science. Oh, there, there's that. Um, there's the network, but I didn't understand or use that until I became an entrepreneur, frankly. Yeah. Way, way, way late. And then... Well, clearly, um, you didn't see the value of knowing a guy. No, at all. I was go. so slow on that one. <laughs> Oh my God! No, do it yourself in a corner, but make mistakes, <laughs> screw up, you know. But I think the last one was the reason I went in. Turned out to, to uh, the big reason I wanted to do it was I wanted to be able to get on and off the island. Like I wanted, I did. I knew a design degree wasn't going to make me credible for lots of different choices in life, right. and and this degree is that. It is still that, you know that. Um, you pull it out when you need it, if you need a ticket back on the island. And that worked for me because I did some unconventional things. Yeah, no, I, I, I feel that as well. Do you? It's, it's kind of an insurance policy in a way that that um, it gives you a little bit of horizontal mobility, you know. Yes. Um, and, it, and it's liberating in that sense, too. I mean, like you, for me, there's no question that even if I look at the opportunity cost of the foregone uh, income on top of the... Uh, you know the the tuition and all that stuff. Right. I mean, it's it just it broadened me in so many ways. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, less so, like you know, I don't, I don't, I rarely rely on discounted cash flow analysis, right? So, um, but I do think that um, I do think as an experience, you know, and I think that's why going to one of the better schools uh, is is worthwhile. But maybe some of the more mechanical aspects of it, maybe there's not as much utility in that. Right. You know? Right. Um, but. Um, yeah, so I, I definitely relate to that. All right, so what'd you do after B school? Well, I graduated in '86. That was not that was like go-go times for um, consulting and investment banking, and those were not things that interested me. I actually was the only person in my class to join a startup. I didn't call it that. I said weird small business, you know, or it was off the radar. What was it? Still exists. I'm very proud of it. It's called Continuum. Uh, it used to be called. Yeah, sure. You know it. Yeah, industrial design Have you hired them? Uh, I have not hired them, but um, I know. Um, what's the, f- the CEO's name? There's oh, the well, old there's one. Harry West. Harry West. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. I joined when they were about a year old, and um, they at that time did industrial design and mechanical and electrical engineering combined, which was revolutionary. IDEO. And Continuum invented that idea of putting those disciplines under one roof. I um, joined, and about two months after I joined in this marketing job, um, I was laid off, along with a whole bunch of people, last in, first out, because the business had a couple big stumbles. And I was like the person wouldn't go home that day, um, thinking about it, thinking, they're right, I would lay me off too. Marketing is a luxury in this company, just when they're st- struggling to survive, they need sales. Right. So I went to the founders and said, I had I, I like scrawled on a piece of paper, here's the plan. I'll work three days a week for $1,000 a month. Here's my commission ask. I made it up. And they took it. Why wouldn't you? I was about to get married. That's a big, you know, big kudos, you know, or big thanks to Des because I was going to have health insurance through getting married. Sure. Um, but I, I just, like, made it up. And it took six months to earn any commission. Those are big projects. They're hard to sell. Yeah. 
Um, but I did. Why? Why did you put yourself out there like that? Was it, were you afraid of leaving? Was it the, no. or what, did you see an opportunity? Like, what was it? I saw the opportunity. I, I mean, the same, nothing changed two months into the job. I yeah. still loved the idea of the firm. I didn't trust the founders as much as I did prior. Sure. But that's why I asked for three days a week. I thought, well, I need two days a week to look for a job if this doesn't work out. Yeah. It, I didn't need a part-time, you know, I didn't have any reason to be part-time other than that. Right. So... It just worked out, though. I um, I started pounding the pavement, and the business had the time that I joined just did um, basically um, medical instrumentation, and it was very cyclical. That was what was hurting us. In FDA approval comes or it doesn't. So I set out to broaden the business. I set out to bring in a range of clients, and I knew that would have two benefits. I'd enjoy it, and Two, it would retain employees better because people like to work on a variety of projects, creative people. So I just set out to find um, anything but instrumentation. So my claim to fame um, was that I landed the Reebok pump shoe project for the company. Wow. Um, Paul Fairman was going crazy because it was an internal idea, this idea of creating an air bladder to customize the fit of a shoe. And... They didn't have the capability to get it down done. And um, through a network, some of my friends from design school, I worked my way to the head of design at Reebok and discovered this problem. you got to teach yourself how to sell um, at some level. I mean, it, yeah. whenever you're a creative person, you have to sell your work. So I'm sure yeah. you had those skills. But getting out there, shaking the tree, meeting people, like, what was that experience like? Well, to some extent, I learned it was a numbers game and a discipline game for me. Um, now, this is old days when there weren't very many efficient ways to reach people. This was phone and letters, right? And I had a discipline about every day I made 35 phone calls. I did a lot of research to figure out who to call. It was usually a VP of engineering, VP of marketing in target companies. And I made 35 phone calls. I give myself a break after five phone calls, like go get a cookie, go to the bathroom. And my goal was to have one good call a day, like one connection where I really talked to somebody. And then I was excellent at follow-up. I always, you know, stayed in touch because these projects, you can't provoke these projects. They're going to come when the time is right for the company. So you got to be there at the right time, which means some regularity, but not too much. I also... um, so I had to learn how to present. I wasn't very good at it in the beginning. I, I went on and on on projects. I didn't read the, the crowd very well. Right. And it was showing our past portfolio, which was it was a real trick to make Reebok think this, or I ended up landing Samsung or Coach Leatherwear, think this, this instrumentation company could do something so radically different. Right. And I had to learn how to bridge between the projects we'd done and the capabilities you had and their needs. And I ended up, I think, succeeding because, not just the discipline, when I went into a room, it was very consistent that I'd be there with, say, a bunch of engineering marketing people, and they would basically vomit on the table all their problems and all their ideas and all their wants and desires for a project. It was always an unholy mess. When I, and I'd come in there, listen to it, and make order out of it with my proposal. And I would bring colleagues of mine, too, so we could, you know, all kind of scrum around it. I, I wasn't a genius about our capabilities. Right. But I'd, oh, I had a 50% hit rate on proposals. And um, and we had competition, IDO and others. Um, so I thought a lot of it was just being a good listener and um, 
Also, I never lied. This, like, I know this sounds crazy, but, you know, when you're trying to, like, scramble and build a business from something you bigger than what you currently are, you can um, paint the picture, but I never exaggerated what we could do. So if a project came along that um, I didn't think we could do, I would turn it down. Hmm. So, you know, I felt like I had a good repeat business. I never had default clients who didn't pay. Consultants have that risk quite often. Right. I, I remember an engine, my favorite guy to go on calls with, um, presentations with, was my, the head of engineering. He's still a good friend to this day. And he said to me, Jules, you're, such, you're the weirdest salesperson because you're like, look, I think we can do this, you know, take it or leave it almost. <laughs> no, well, not that, like, just so soft sell, so soft sell. That inspired trust. But I was telling the truth. Yeah. Yeah, no, you, you got to, uh, everybody's got their way. It's a personal thing, selling. Yeah. Um, and I think you have to find what works for you, you know. But I, I, it's interesting to me that you're probably the fifth person I've spoken to who, who at some point in their career decided to move in a direction that required them to learn how to sell to yeah. a business, you know. I think most great entrepreneurs have carried a bag at some level, you know. Yeah. Uh, because that's what that's a big part of the job, as you as you well know. Yes. Um, all right. So did it did it work out for you there? Were you able to turn that into a massive opportunity? Yeah, that commission plan was pretty good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I stayed five years. Yeah, well, that's yeah. a good run. Yeah. Um, and what'd you do after? I wanted to actually climb the learning curve again because as much as I love the clients and like learning about someone's business and doing something for them, at the end of the day, I was on the outside. I wanted to be on the inside. So um, I ended up getting a job at Keds, the shoe company. I you know I had a little bit of the shoe. Like it was enough to be dangerous in the shoe industry. I could mm. talk about it. And I really liked the CEO of StrideRide, who owned the company, um, and from what I could tell. And so I got a job, and I was uh, in charge of licensing. They had five unruly licensees, you know, people making clothes with their name and socks with their name, and nobody was minding the store. So they put me in charge of that, and then um, I got a lucky break. My boss changed. Meg Whitman landed on my head as my boss. She was put, she was doing sort of corporate work for the CEO of Stride and she was put into the heads division as head of product and marketing. And I ended up becoming like her utility player in three different companies, not just Keds. I followed her around for a while. What was special about her in those days? Um, She's really clear thinking and a clear communicator. So she she was super honest, first of all. Um, Very, I'll give an example. She was trying to do her, you know, she was former Bain consultant, and she came in trying to figure out what was what in Keds. And I remember her telling me, or asking me, you know, what do you think we'd do? What's an A? Like, what part of what we do could be graded A or B or C? And I probably said, you know, a bunch of A's and B's. And she's like, nope. (laughs) C at best. You know, she was just disagreeing with me left and right. And I love that, you know, like, fresh perspective. She was respecting me enough to disagree with me. That's cool. Right. And, um... So that was a good start with her. But then when I worked on projects with her, anyone worked with her, she was very clear about the objectives and she was very clear about getting the right resources. She would know what to say no to, which is an art, right? Don't sure. pretend you can do everything. Yeah. Put the resources where they're needed and let people do their jobs. And so 
she taught me a technique I really loved um, that I still use. It's called blank sliding. Consultants do this. I'd, I always did these massive projects for her. I was always the in-between. I wasn't an operating person. I was VP of st- strategy or VP of something weird title because she just wanted someone to do like fill the cracks and do the projects that weren't going to get done. Like um, if it was we were in two turnarounds, so revamping the brand, revamping the stores when I followed her to Stride Right. We had real distribution problems when... Um, we built a, an automated distribution facility that didn't work, and J.C. Penney was our largest account. So I was just like taking care of J.C. Penney. I couldn't do anything but go take care of them. Yeah. So I was that person who would coordinate lots of people to do big, hard projects, and we would always start them with this blank slide. Okay, what's the presentation we're going to give at the end of this large project? What is what are the titles on the slides going to be? We don't know what's on the slides. What are the titles? And we would literally sit with copy paper and write the titles, maybe a few sketches of how to answer the question at the top of the title. And then I'd go away, and I might not really talk to her about it for weeks, days. But I could always, like, literally carry the the stapled together thing and say, you know, this slide where I said I was going to do this analysis or this slide where I was going to change, I can't do this or I can do this. And we had a frame of reference that I always knew when I was committing massive time and resources that I was on the track we agreed to. Yeah, that's huge. You know, I, I'd say to people, don't confuse making progress with moving forward. Yeah. Moving forward is just the random direction. Yeah. You know, making progress is towards, uh, you know, some end goal that you have a clear vision for. Right. And I think that's, that's a lot of people conflate those two ideas. Yeah. Um, so quite a run with her. It sounds like you guys did Three a lot companies. of stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We, I went and followed her. She became president of Stride, right? Then she'd be president down in Rhode Island of um, Play School, the Hasbro division. So I didn't do FTD and I didn't do eBay. Doi. Yeah, tricky. Um, you had had your kids by this point. Yeah. So talk a little bit about that, about, you know, your life is a portfolio of, of, of lives. Um, somebody says a marriage is a portfolio of marriages, you know. <laughs> Um, but in that part of your life, you know, you, you're someone who's, who's very much about, you know, work and it's a big part of who you are. Uh, but I know, you know, obviously so is being a mom. So talk a little bit about that and how you, how you, you know, managed it. Well, remember I told you, um, I went part-time at the design firm because I thought I needed time to find a job. I was working three days a week. I ultimately... Um, had two children while I was at the firm, and then a third while I worked at Stride Right, my three sons. And I maintained that schedule three or four days a week for 17 years wow. in executive roles, in high-pressure roles. Not, I will say this, um, I was on the line for things, but I didn't necessarily manage big teams. I think that would have been hard um, during that phase. But that was my answer for juggling because I knew um, I had an instinct that sometime in my life I would surge big. These were not surge big years. They were hardworking building right. years, but they were not surge big. You know, I didn't aspire to be Meg I did, right. or, or that job. Were you able to disconnect from it? Because in my experience, like half the time, three days a week is a lie. Um, that it's very hard to, particularly for someone who's intense, you know, to, to not work on those other two days. I mean, were you able to, to disengage? I mean, I'm sure you had a lot of shit to do running these kids around, right? But yeah. uh, 
uh, how did you make that work? That was the hardest thing. Yeah. I remember um, there was a phase for two years I didn't work at all, and what a relief that the phone call was just a phone call. You know, it was sure. just some. Uh, so that was hard. I will say one thing that helped is being the age I am, email was not prevalent during all of this, or, nor was cell phones. Right. So somebody had to try a little harder, yeah. you know. We have become prisoners of the technology yeah. that was supposed to liberate us. Yes. I, and Meg used to take advantage of it because, first of all, th- I'll give a quick commercial for part-time professionals because people probably still don't really embrace that. You get a full-time brain, yeah. like, to your point. You get a full-time brain yeah. for two-thirds the price. And Meg got two-thirds, I mean, a full brain for two-thirds the price. And she yeah. would, in a, in, a, in a benign way, take advantage of it. I'd be heading out, say, for the Wednesday I was going to be off. And on Tuesday night she'd say, you know, I know you do your best thinking at home. Can you think about this? Yeah. And well, that's I, just good management. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, she got me again. Yeah. <laughs> Good, good organization punishes competence. It's a bit of truth. Um, how do you make the decision to become an entrepreneur at such an advanced age? Um, you were in your late 40s, right? Yeah, when I was really starting to think about this, 47. Yeah. So, so walk us through that. How do, you, how, do you, how do you get to that? Was it something, a bug you'd always had, an itch you needed to scratch, or did it just hit you one day? How did it happen? So... Both of those things, yeah. a long-term thing, and it hit me one day. So the long-term thing was when I worked at Play School, and even before that at Keds, I noticed our best products never made it to market. And I asked Meg, "What's going on? We have great capabilities." And she said, "If Kmart, Target, Toys R Us, or Walmart doesn't want it, this is at Play School, not going to get made." And that really pissed me off. Really pissed me off. This big company couldn't even get the best products on shelf. And it was just a product of retail consolidating, pure and simple. Specialty retail was getting really decimated, toy, right. company, toy stores. I carried that from the 90s. Fast forward um, to I had just left a social network. I, I, that was a job we didn't talk about. I was president of a company that competed with LinkedIn called Ziggs. I was a pioneer in social media. I thought it was really interesting exciting before it was a thing. And... I had left that company, and I was sitting in Northbridge um, Venture Capital offices, thinking I waiting for um, Dana Grayson, and I was thinking I was going to get another job in a startup as president of the social network, and um, I met this entrepreneur, and we were just shooting the breeze for a really long time, and I told him, you know, there's this problem with products, how they get launched and how they get discovered. It's There's a chokehold by these buyers. Meanwhile, I just ran this social network, and I think you could turn that that baby on, you know, get these people to decide, right. you know, give them something to act on. It was almost like socialist. And he, I've never seen him to this day, Grant, and he said, you should do that. And that night I was um, flying to visit my son at Carnegie Mellon, and I wrote a pros and cons list of, you know, kind of why I would do it. And I drew a picture of the business. I drew a picture of the behavioral and technological influences that would enable the business. The rise of broadband. The, I saw YouTube was becoming more influential than traditional marketing. I, was, I saw people were starting to distrust big institutions. We were getting, you know, getting scared about some of the things that were happening at the government and, you know, Wall Street level, and small business was a source of trust. I was drawing all this stuff. Sure. 
And um, then the next day, I ran um, some basic numbers because I, I knew one number, I won't bore you with it, but a number I needed to solve for to know if I had a business. Really basic spreadsheet. And so this is all in the course of a couple days. I kind of went, ah, I think I, I think there's something here. And um, and then it was like little baby steps after that. It wasn't like I said, I'm in 100%. I tested the idea and a couple safe sources, like knowledgeable but safe. Like, right. You know, and if honestly, if they'd thrown up on it, I might have not done it. If I had found anyone cracking this problem, I wouldn't have done it. So I've heard it said that there are entrepreneurs who just want to be something, be an entrepreneur. I'm not that one. It's, I think that's a normal way to be an entrepreneur. The serial entrepreneurs, that they grow up or they feel it, they know it. Right. Not me. I, I'm the smaller category of people who want to just do something. Like you're forced into it because yeah. you can't find anyone else doing it and yeah. it's got to get done. And in my case, I thought it was the biggest business opportunity I, of my lifetime. I hadn't seen anything like this that I saw have as much potential. So it's the idea that forced me into it. Well, between that and the grommet that people know, um, there was, you know, 40 years in the desert. (laughs) Um, So as we were chatting and talking about what to do as a second segment, one of the things I suggested is just, you know, you're one of the most tenacious entrepreneurs um, I, I've ever known, honestly. It just felt like for so long you were in there banging on it. Um, you had you had a great story, and the first time you, you talked about, you know, it's this charming mom and pop little business with this massive engine, this financial. Like you even had the pitch down to like this is not a failure of presentation. Just to be clear for the audience, oh, thank you. Um, so I needed to hear that. Uh, I've never heard that. Yeah, it, it, you really had it down. Why? Why was it so fucking hard <laughs> to, to, to raise the money to do this? And, and, and what did you learn from that experience for the benefit of, of people who are going through that? Well, um, first of all, if I ever have another bright idea, I'm going to sit on my hands for two years because we were too early for this idea. And, um, you know, you should be early with, you know, you don't want to do something. I would never do a copycat business. I'd be bored to tears. But... There are there is timing, and I think timing's difficult. And as a designer, I tend to be early. So why I say it was early is that people didn't understand um, the change. The, the changing technologies would enable regular people to create products. The, the internet alone, access to information and manufacturing and prototyping, three D printing wasn't discussed. The crowdfunding platforms hadn't emerged yet. So we we were seeing something before it was easy to right. see. This sort of democratization of product development. Yes. Yeah. And then there were two other problems. We launched, you're talking about fundraising really. Our, we had one big problem fundraising. Everything else were, you know, ordinary problems. Yeah. And, you know, we lived on breadcrumbs for four years. Angel, angel drips and drabs. And um, the second problem was we launched a couple weeks after Lehman Brothers collapsed. I mean, what what I do differently that I know now? I thought at the time, the experienced entrepreneurs who suddenly put their ideas on ice were wimps. Yeah. I bought the idea that, you know, the contrarian, do it when it's not popular. Yeah, that's all fine if, you know, there's capital. But if you're a first-time entrepreneur, there ain't no capital. Yeah. 
So there was that. And then I think, um, and that that is big, and that's the biggest thing I really think is, you know, huge. I think the third thing, though, I didn't fit the mold. Yeah. Pure and simple. Right. Too old, too blonde, too female. Yeah, yeah. You know, and first-time entrepreneur. That's hard for anyone. And I since learned women only get... I was trying to get venture capital, and I, women have only gotten 2.7% of venture capital. So I was def, trying to defy odds I didn't know existed. Right. So someone listening to this uh, at some point is is struggling with a business, trying to raise money, and and uh, you have to make that decision. Like, do I punt or do I stick to it? You know, what's the best advice you have for that person on how to make that incredibly hard decision? Well, I'm going to take that two ways. One is what kept me going um, is something that could be transferable to other people, the first part. Second part, maybe not so much. The first part is we were getting fantastic feedback from the makers, the inventors, products we launched. Even when we were tiny, we were punching way above our weight and influencing media companies, you know, publications to write about them and retailers to pick them up like there was this like cadence where we'd launch a product and be in ink magazine six weeks later and on container store shelves three months later right and we were watching this and realizing we had impact when our email list for instance was four thousand people half of it though were these like powerful entities you know so that kept us going the makers would tell us oh my gosh i don't know where i'd be without you and that helped a lot secondly um I mean, very early I had a choice. I'd raised $350,000. That's what we had when we launched. And I'd give the money back or go for what I wanted to do, which was raise a real Series A. And very quickly I felt the um, responsibility of the team and the opportunity and the investors, maybe overly so, frankly, because when I think about it now, 10 people, $350,000, it's not that much. Right. But I felt it, and I carried it happily. Um, so those two things, I think are relatable for any entrepreneur. If you're getting great market feedback and you feel the, um, not overly, but you feel the responsibility of the, the people you're, you're, um, you owe something to. I did have good advice from a VC when he said, a um, good friend of mine in Ireland who's a VC, and he said, never feel bad if you lose the money because as long as you worked as hard as you possibly could we're big boys like so yeah, i did have that's that the model. i did have that attitude yeah. it was less about the investors and more about the team i had people working for zero cash which i now now know was illegal you know i had a lot of people working for zero cash and i wanted to give them a res something on their resume to be proud of a w so I was probably working for that more than anything, certainly not for myself sure. at that point. But the second part that I think is less transferable but really important to me is, I, like I said, I was 47, really 48 when we launched. And I had a couple really, really important sources of emotional ballast because I think it's emotional ballast you need to weather those things. Like intellectually, you can kind of figure out if the idea is good or not yeah. maybe, but you still have to deal with yourself. And... I knew that even if this thing went down in flames, I wasn't going to be a loser because I had a professional reputation. And secondly, I think it's really hard to be a younger entrepreneur establishing a life at the same time as a company. Right. I had a wonderful family who I'd look in the eyes at night and want to do a good job for them. But if I 
you know, fell on my face, they were still going to be there. And I, I frankly put so much energy in my family all the prior years that I was somewhat drawing on that bank account anyway. Like sure. I was pretty absent. Let me let get let's let's not, you know, no fooling here. I was same as anyone else working a million hours. But my kids were old enough, and they could appreciate what my absence was being, why I was absent, or why yeah. I was could barely think about anything else and it's all I ever wanted to talk about. You know, yeah. at and dinner they liked it. And Not- that, that experience of your life I'm sure shapes them as much as the Ireland experience in some yes. ways. To have that yes. example. You yes. Know, see someone with that fire and you know, that's a great thing. That's a gift to them. You know? Yeah. My middle son gave me um, flowers from others to, or for what was it? My birthday in December and uh, he wrote a note, Mom, you're my everyday hero. And I love that, you know, what else would you want? All right, so uh, I am uh, an Amazon person, and uh, I said something. They're my default. Um, sometimes I'll like look for something online, and I'll I'll find it somewhere, and I'll go to Amazon to see if they have it because it's so easy, it's frictionless, blah blah blah. And I posted something on Facebook, and we're friends on Facebook, and you said, "Oh God, um, <laughs> not Amazon, not Amazon." Um, so I I want to understand this. Um, like like many people, I've had nothing but positive experiences with them as a customer. Why is Amazon evil? <laughs> because Amazon solving for its own success, and you're part of that. Um, they're wonderful in all the ways you describe selection and delivery. They deserve your trust on those fronts. But here's the underbelly. They don't care about their suppliers, their makers, and we see them kill innovation, other people's innovation and businesses all the time. And they do it really simply two ways, by destroying pricing or selling counterfeits. So 44% of online shopping trips start at Amazon. It's the shopping search engine. It's a de facto market price for any product that's on Amazon. And that's new in the world. That didn't exist before. Remember, when we were growing up, prices used to be printed on products. They were so solid, right? And you could trust prices. Now we're all afraid of being taken advantage of. And so Amazon is a starting point, and they set their prices to benefit their business, not their suppliers. And it's very different than a real retailer. A real retailer who has to make money at retail depends on long-term relationships with their makers, suppliers. So they work harder to make sure those people stay in business, which means fair prices. It doesn't mean high prices, just fair. Well, I mean, you know, for years, though, people have said Walmart is, you know, is brutal to its suppliers, right? I mean, they have a reputation for, you know, the meetings out in Bentonville where people get beat up, and I'm sure you've heard those horror stories. Yeah, they're choir boys compared to Amazon. Really? Yeah. Um, and, and is that a matter of, of corporate culture or the, or, alg- or unfeeling algorithms? It's or more what? the unfeeling algorithms. I don't believe Jeff Bezos sits behind his desk trying to put Birkenstock out of business. Twirling his mustache. and uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, with his little monocle. Sure. You know. Yeah, yeah. No, I don't believe that. It's, it's literally algorithmic. Um, so here's what's happened, and it's happened to us. We're launching a product um, that's coming in from Italy. This is a real story, and um, never been seen in the U.S. Um, but on Amazon are a bunch of 
um, they're usually Chinese counterfeiters selling that same product for half price. So as they're about to do their U.S. debut on Gromit, we always do our research to see what's out there, and we realize, oh, my gosh, there's this underbelly to this product. The maker doesn't even know because they're in Italy. Right. And we're about to give this company a massive spotlight. Any sane person is going to pick the one that's half price, and they're going to buy a counterfeit that doesn't work, and they're going to ruin the debut of this company in the U.S., not even knowing it. Because right. they're going to be mad this product doesn't work. Right. Right? And Amazon, when you tell them, these these counterfeiters use our photos, use the maker's photo. I've seen myself on Amazon, a picture of me with a grommet under somebody else's product you know, listing. Pictures of makers. And Amazon willfully continues those listings even when the maker tells them that's that's a picture of me somebody else is selling the product it's not my product they make you go through this whole rigmarole of a test purchase improving it and they never take it down so some brands have already it hurts big brands it hurts little guys little guys they put out of business big brands it hurts their bottom line probably more so but the little guys who have their really cool innovative products the ones we deal with are the ones that actually just get put out of business you never even knew they existed they were dead at the starting line and so what we tell our makers is it's okay to sell on amazon marketplace where you can control your price Um, that part the price game you can somewhat handle but the counterfeits no controlling that. Some Mercedes is pulled off because they were selling counterfeit tires. Birkenstocks pulled off truck bicycles. Um, so, Mike, here's the deal. It's really inconvenient not to buy an Amazon. I know this. Yeah. I try really hard not to buy there, and I'm still buying there maybe 10 times a year, which, you know, it could easily be 100 times a year because I'm buying 90 other things somewhere else. And I think it's an obligation to try. Yeah. Sometimes you can't avoid it. But if you care about local retail, too, because we're not just talking about e-commerce, talking about bricks and mortar retail, and you care about innovation, you know, having these companies see the light of day, Amazon's not the place to do that. And you could get fooled with counterfeit product anyway. So it's, at times it's going to be hurting you, too. It's not the broader picture always. Well, one of the few things I love more than Amazon is startups. So... Um that's a compelling case, and I uh, appreciate your thoughts. Jules Peary, harshing my buzz relative to uh, my beloved Amazon. Uh, actually, a lot to think about it. You know, it's funny. I've been thinking about it a lot since then. Uh, and I definitely, um, um, I, bought some, um, I bought something someplace else without looking at Amazon, which has always been my default. So maybe there's hope. Uh, anyway, a lot to think about from a really thoughtful person. I want to thank Jules for uh, that time and for being such a gracious host at her place. Um, it was fun. All right, How Hard Can It Be is sponsored by G20 Ventures, early traction capital for East Coast enterprise tech startups, backed by the power and expertise of 20 of the Northeast's most accomplished entrepreneurs, G20 Ventures, people first. Now, How Hard Can It Be is also sponsored by Actifio. Actifio virtualizes data the way a hypervisor virtualizes compute to help customers enable the hybrid cloud, build higher quality applications faster, and improve business resiliency and availability. Actifio are radically simple. Please don't forget to subscribe to How Hard Can It Be. Uh, Give us a quick rating on iTunes. It really helps spread the word. Thanks for sticking around, and we will see you next week.